You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I don't know what you think when a song that you love comes on the radio, into your headphones or into your speakers at home, your Alexa or your ridiculous ear pods that hang off halfway down your ear. Uh, Sorry. Maybe you don't think too much at all. Maybe you're just grooving with the track. You like the beat. You like the bass line. Maybe you're just resonating with the lyrics, whether the lyrics are rapped or they're sung. The song, though, you know, for those of us who are musicians, for those of us who have spent time in the studios and stuff, we know that the song comes to you as a listener, bound up in together what is called a mastered track, a track that has been mixed and mastered for your headphones or your speakers. Behind each track that you listen to, each song you listen to, there are a whole cast of characters who are coordinated by a producer, like Quincy Jones, (laughs) all right? This producer works with the artists, the writers, the instrumentalists, the engineers in the studio, with all of their amazing variety of gifts and contributions and even flaws (laughs) to bring them into a cohesive whole that is the song that's in your ears. I heartily recommend and listen to a podcast often that is called Song Exploder. Anyone listen to Song Exploder? Two people. All right. What this podcast does is that it takes a song that's well known. It brings in the original artist of that song and the producer of that song and has them break down how the song became what you hear now. Recently, I was listening to an episode that features the Chicago R&B singer Jamila Woods and her song Baldwin. She talks about how this song first started after she read a published letter from the late great writer James Baldwin to his nephew that he wrote. I'm not going to get into all the details, but Baldwin's letter and Jamila Wood's song are basically about the challenge and demand of cross-cultural love from her as a black woman to her white acquaintances and friends. I'm not making that up, though it fits just fine with my sermon today. She talks about how the song Baldwin began. She began by looking up on YouTube uh, a clip from the R&B 90s group called SWV and their song, I'm So Into You, from the album It's About Time. She took that beat and began, she just ripped it off YouTube, put it in GarageBand, began singing over its harmonic progressions, just sat with the song for a long time. It sat in its original form until she got hooked up with a hip-hop producer named Slot A out of Chicago. Now, he helped her take the song to an amazing musical and lyric place. And through the episode, they concentrate on different tracks within the song. They solo them out. You're listening to the whole, and then you get to hear a, a sample of the MPC drum machine that's producing the kicks and the hats and the snares that make up the beat. And then you get to listen to the, the Fender Rhodes with heavy tremolo, which is a sound I often like to use in here. And, and, then, and then you get to solo in on the Moog bass, that instrument right over there. And it's awesome in the midst of hearing the whole uh, layered and diverse, beautiful, mastered song to realize that the, the song is really a colorful combination of many different tracks into one whole. So that when you listen to the song, it just hits. In the middle of chapter 3 of Ephesians, there's this verse that Paul says the church is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery of God hidden for ages who created all things. Then he says this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. I'm going to start my sermon with a Greek word study, all right? This is dangerous. Manifold. I want to concentrate there because it's the only time that word appears in the whole New Testament. 
the manifold wisdom of God. And in Greek, it's the polupoikilos. All right, the polupoikilos wisdom. In the ancient Greek world, here's what that meant. It meant something of many rich or various colors alongside each other, woven together. In the Old Testament, it was used to refer to Joseph's coat of many colors. But outside the New Testament, in ancient Greece, it referred to intricate embroidery or uh, flowers of many colors in a field. <laughs> See, the church is the mastered and colorful and beautiful track of God's redemptive love. It is God's eternal hit single and platinum album. The church includes many diverse tracks and parts and players who are mixed and mastered by the Spirit of God. And it's the sound of this track, properly mixed, that is to go out as a witness to the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers of evil in the world. How does the church sound to you, though? Whether you're inside of it or outside of it. What does its song sound like? How does the church sound to our neighborhood, Mosaic? Our song of God's redemptive love is often not heard or it's poorly heard in our places and in our context. Because both of these things are true about the book of Ephesians. One, that God has done something already in the church. He has chosen, sanctified, adopted the people of God into the church. He has set Jesus' head over the church. But also that the church has to grow up and mature into that reality. The church has to be formed into the boundless and limitless love of Jesus. That's what our passage today says, that if we want to grow into this mysterious vision of the diversity of God's church, we have to be formed and rooted in the love of Jesus. I want to walk through this passage as it flows by itself. I just want to groove with the passage, if you'll let me, by walking through uh, this phrase, because this is how I'd summarize this chapter. It's about a man with a plan and a prayer. A man with a plan and a prayer. First of all, a man. The first verse, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is a man. He's a human being like you and me. You can often see in his letters that he writes in the New Testament his vulnerability, his emotions, his anger, his desires, his anxiety, his fears. He's been writing these amazing first two chapters, though he didn't have chapters in his original letter. He just wrote a letter. But he's been writing these first two chapters of Ephesians that we've been through the last two weeks, and they just overflow with praise and theology and, and doctrine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He just goes on from there. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. But now he turns the attention upon himself because he wants the, he's the Ephesians pastor. He's the one who started the churches because he wants the Ephesians to remember who he is and why he's now in prison on their behalf. He's writing from prison because of his ministry to them, the Gentiles. It's why the Jewish leadership of his day had gotten him thrown into Roman prison because they despised his ministry to those outside the covenant community. He was a prisoner of Rome, but he calls himself a prisoner of or for Jesus Christ. That's because Paul interpreted all of his life, whatever happened to him, in the light of the Christocentric vision of reality. That all life was directed by his Lord Jesus. The same Lord who had knocked him blind off his uh, horse when he was a Gentile hating persecutor of the Jesus movement. He was a prisoner because Jesus had directed his path to prison. Because he found it worth following Jesus all the way 
to prison like many in China this morning, lest we forget them. He is in prison, and now, ironically, he is suffering on behalf of the Gentiles that he once persecuted, the very people he had so violently fought to keep out of the covenant community. You see that? You see how God works? That now he's suffering for their inclusion into the covenant family. In Galatians, he says this. He says, you've heard of my former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. And then he says, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. See, sometimes being zealous for the traditions of your people can make you fight against God's people. That's a word from Paul. Sometimes being zealous to fight for the traditions of your fathers can actually make you fight against your family in Christ. So you got to discern that. See, the love of Jesus will not only make you have affection, but it will also make you suffer for those you would naturally like to oppose and alienate from your life and community. And here Paul is, the one who had once hated the Gentiles, suffering on their behalf, sitting in prison. And Paul wants them, the mostly Gentile congregation in Ephesus, to know that it's because of his love for them and Jesus' love for them that he's suffering. But he also wants them to know that it's not really about him. 7, verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why does he say least of all the saints? Because he remembers he used to be killing the saints. If anyone's going to be least, it's him. He used to be persecuting Jesus. He missed it completely. But God is gracious to those who miss it completely. Amen. And then he says that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, we hear that word a lot, a minister. But the, the minister is the same word from which we get our word deacon in the church. And it simply could mean in that day a letter carrier, a mailman or a mailwoman who delivers something to someone else. See, a male woman does not come to my door giving me a package she owns. She's delivering something to my door. She didn't make it. She didn't manufacture it. She didn't write the check that, praise God, sometimes comes into my mailbox. She is but a steward or a minister of the valuable things she leaves on my porch. What Paul is saying is that he is but a carrier of the gift of the gospel. It ain't about him. Do you recognize the gift of God's grace in your life? Before we can talk about this whole idea of diversity and unity, you have to divest yourself of thinking that you're something special. It was because God gave you the package of the gospel. Do you recognize your lack of ground for boasting in anything within yourself, but see yourself instead as a steward of God's grace? That is the grounding that Paul finds in his life to live for others in diverse community. you got to see yourself as a steward. You have to see yourself as one who has received from the stockpile of the unsearchable riches of Christ, which literally means the infinite wealth of Jesus. Yes, you may get tired of carrying the packages. You may get tired of ministering and loving. But here's what, here's what you need to know. That stockpile that you grab from will never run out. That's what Paul sets his hope in. It's not about you. It's not about me. Paul says it's, what, it's about what we've been given. But our chapter also talks very much about a plan. Paul is a man that has received a plan that he calls a mystery. 
Verse 3, you've heard how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles by the Spirit. When Paul speaks of the mysterious plan, he doesn't mean something that is unclear or obscure now. He speaks of something that was hidden for many, many years, but has now been made known and made clear for everyone. God does not want his gospel of a diverse family coming together in Christ to be obscured. Though the church has tried to obscure it many times, you can't obscure it ultimately, that the mysterious gospel will be made clear. And then what does he say the mystery is? Verse 6, he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Heirs, members, promise. That's all language of the Old Testament. It's all language of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. But now it's what the Gentiles get to inherit by faith. Not because they were born into the right family, but because they were born into the human family. This mystery is for God's magnificent plan to create a new people for his own. For it's true that in the Old Testament, God sets his particular love on Israel in the story of Scripture. But that story and that love for Israel is always busting at the seams. Because Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations, first of all. But second of all, you start to see from the earliest chapters of the Bible that outsiders get in. You have Hagar in Genesis 16, who's an Egyptian woman, and she gets in the family. You have Rahab in Joshua 2. She's a prostitute in Canaan. She gets in the family. You have Ruth, the Moabite. You have Naaman, the Syrian. See, the Old Testament story whets your appetites for the floodgates of God's love to open because it was never enough just to have one group of people for himself. Because the Old Testament sets up the track. You start hearing some of the nation ideas, the beats and the melodies of God's love and faithfulness. And then when you get to the New Testament, you start hearing the master track when all of the different parts come in. Because it's not enough to have one kind of people for God. Because God created every family on earth. Right? Herman Bobbing says, The image of God is much too rich to be fully realized in a single human being. I got this quote from Dr. Irwin Entz. Years before I even knew him. The image of God is much too rich to be fully realized in a single human being. However richly gifted that human being may be, it can only be somewhat unfolded in its depths and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. Only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism, only then can it be the fully furnished image of God. That's what Bobbing said. And this is the manifold, multicolored, multi-everything wisdom of God. And that wisdom through the church is to be displayed to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What does that mean? What does that mean? I'm going to try. I'm going to try. In the biblical picture of the world, in the biblical worldview, here's what you have. At the lowest story, you have humans, you and I, that exercise dominion over the creation. And then you have what's called uh, the cosmic powers, the angels and fallen angels. The scripture explicitly speaks of fallen angels who tempt and cause and influence humans to sin, right? The fall of Adam and Eve of sin was brought into by who? A fallen angel. The idolatry of peoples and nations to worship false gods is attributed in the Bible to fallen angels or demons. 
In, in Ephesians 6, where we'll get to later, Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Realize this, people of God. When we talk about the, the challenge of living into cross-cultural, multi-everything nature of the church, we are not merely fighting against flesh and blood. We are fighting against cosmic powers that have from the beginning divided humans from one another and created enmity and strife and violence and a legacy of injustice and a legacy of hatred, shame and pain and blame. That cannot be discounted and it cannot be fixed by simple human prescriptions. The church's witness of diversity is not merely also for the sake of flesh and blood. It's not merely for the sake of making sure our quotas and our cultural intelligence and our visual optics are all good, according to the culture we live in at the time. We are to fight for diversity so that our witness might be a proclamation to the demons that Jesus has victoriously triumphed over their power to destroy and divide humanity. Do you see that? The New Testament ain't playing. It's saying that our diversity is a weapon against the very demonic forces of this world. But what is diversity? Diversity is a radically Christian idea in its origin. Over against the violent and pagan context that Christianity grew up, grew up out of, uh, Tortolian, the North African church father in the 200s, wrote this, quoting the pagans when they looked at Christians. They said, look at how they love each other. For us pagans hate each other. <laughs> and look at how they're ready to die for each other. For us pagans are more readier to kill each other. How is the Christian vision of diversity unique, though, in our world? Because diversity is a very popular idea today. It wasn't always, but it's found a, a following today. And how does the Christian vision of diversity differ? In some ways it doesn't, and in some way it does. I, I want to sketch out two common approaches that we see in our world concerning diversity and unity. The first, task, uh, the first path one might follow is the path called tolerance, and the second one might call purity. First, the tolerance mindset has a lot of attraction today. In this path to diversity, we are told that we are all supposed to just chill out about our differences. We can theoretically all hold different beliefs and convictions about morality. We can all be from so many different places in the world. But as long as we tolerate each other and don't draw, draw attention to our differences, we can find unity. See, this mindset actually dilutes difference. You can be different up to a point. But when you start getting into the realm of conflict and morality and a shared history of pain and shame, it won't get you deep enough because it dilutes difference. The second false um, form of diversity we might call purity, meaning we just simply try to destroy or nullify those who are different from us so that it's us versus them, so that we can have unity. It destroys difference. The first approach dilutes it. The second approach destroys it. But both of these approaches seek to create not true unity and diversity, but a kind of uniformity where differences are concerned. You can be different up to a point. The diversity of the, of the church, however, is one that is grounded in the redemptive love of God that has created a new people and a new family. That's the dominant metaphor in the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has adopted us as his children, brought us into a new family. Meaning, so here, here's the two parts. The grounding for it is that each one of us is made by a creator in dignity 
right? In God's image. That's the, the grounding as we talked about earlier with, with the Bavink quote. But here's the second quote, that each one of us has to be known as one who has redeemed from sin and evil by a redeemer. That's what levels the playing field for diversity. Not only that each of us is created in dignity, but that each of us uniquely is redeemed by a redeemer. There has to be room for confession and repentance and transformation. If you don't suffer for one another in community and in diversity, if you don't fail one another, if you don't offend one another, if you don't drive one another crazy, if you don't get reconciled to one another, then it is not love, it is not community, it is not diversity. That is the Christian view of diversity. And here's the thing, people. I, I haven't labored in this area of intentional cross-cultural ministry forever, but I at least have a few years under my belt. <laughs> and what I think and what I've come to know is that the greatest threat to cross-cultural living in diversity is not a lack of wokeness or awareness, though that is, that is a dangerous threat. It is not impatience, though that's a dangerous threat. It's not anger. It's not conflict. The biggest obstacle to living in diversity and unity is cynicism. Because cynicism is the death of love. Cynicism sees this manifold, multicolored wisdom of God and says, yeah, that's a pipe dream. Cynicism looks at sisters and brothers in the faith and says, Psh, they're hopeless. They're just a bunch of fill in the blanks. You begin to look at people and look at the church through the most ungenerous, ungrateful, unappreciative, and uncharitable lenses. But Ephesians 3 won't let us do that. Ephesians 3 will lead you to thanksgiving instead of just constantly complaining. And I'm speaking this as me. I'm not speaking this as someone on a moral high horse. Recently, we had a moving day. We moved to a new house. And Melissa said, okay, on this day, on moving day, we are not going to complain any. We will offer no complaints. We will do nothing but give thanks and encourage today on moving day. So I wake up. I'm by myself. I'm just by myself at this point. I'm standing down in the kitchen making coffee, and I'm swatting away complaints in my mind. Uh, you know, 30 a minute. I'm tired. Oh, the stupid coffee maker. Whatever it is, man. It's hard work to be grateful. I woke up this morning cranky. Our flesh, in our flesh, we are so often ungrateful. And that especially affects life in cross-cultural community because you can always find something to be ungrateful about. And I don't care if you're in monocultural community. You're always going to have something that drives you crazy about your neighbor in the pew next to you. But the key is to lean into this gratitude and praise of the manifold wisdom of God. My mentor in, faith, uh, my mentor in the faith and in cross-cultural ministry Reverend Dr. Colonel Mike Higgins once taught me that if it's not hard, then it's not cross-cultural. If it's not hard, then it's not cross-cultural. That's why Paul says in verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. The suffering of cross-cultural, diverse, redemptive ministry is painful, but it is for glory, the glory of one another. But you can often lose heart in ministry, and therefore that's why Paul turns to prayer. Paul turns to prayer. We often go somewhere else for help, but Paul turns to prayer. And he prays one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the scriptures. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He says, strengthen in your inner being. 
That's the same phrase used in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, We don't lose heart, though our outer being is wasting away. Our inner being is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, right? Paul does not pray for the Ephesians' outward situation to change. We often spend much of our time in prayer praying for others or ourselves' outward situations to change. Take away my pain. Take away this person who's a fool and they're making me mad. Do this, God. Do something out there. But Paul focuses on their inner strength in their inner selves, their inner man, inner woman, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Paul wants them to be strengthened inside of themselves so that they can realize the reality that Jesus dwells among them. How do you pray for people? Do you just concentrate on their outward circumstances? Or do you pray for their heart to be fortified in the love of Jesus? How do you pray for those who really are getting on your nerves and have offended you? Do you pray for them to go away? Do you just simply pray for another person's pain and suffering to go away? Or do you pray that they would grow in the midst of their outward hard circumstances? And then Paul continues that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul uses the physical illustration of a space that's too deep to realize, too high to realize, too long and too wide. Yusufu Turaki, the Nigerian theologian, he puts it like this. Paul tries to explain the extent of Jesus' love by using physical measurements, but he knows that these examples are inadequate (laughs) because Christ's love is so wide that it covers the whole world and even beyond. It is so long that it has no limits. Is it eternal? It is so high that there is no height that it cannot reach and even exceed. It is so deep that it can reach down into hell itself to rescue those held in bondage to Satan. And that Paul prays that the believers will experience this type of boundless love in themselves and as a community. It is in this immeasurable love that the church is supposed to swim in, to be founded in. He uses agricultural language of rooted. He uses architectural language of founded, planted so deep in an inexhaustible love. Frederick Lehman's famous hymn, The Love of God, is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, it reaches to the lowest hell. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. And then he says this, listen. Could we, the ink, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe they trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, so though stretched from sky to sky. That is the kind of love that Paul is talking about. But you have to know it with all the saints. You see that phrase? You have to know that love with all the saints. You cannot comprehend the love of Christ outside of the love of the family of God in the church. Just like you can't image God by yourself. You cannot understand the redemption of God by yourself. You have to know how the Redeemer has redeemed each one particularly and individually and together as a community. You need your family to understand the love of Jesus. You need your family in worship to be able to realize the fullness of God and Christ's redemption. And then he prays this. (laughs) I love this prayer. 
I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Listen to that again. <laughs> I pray that you would know the love of Christ that you cannot know. How can you know something you can't know? Because love is a verb. And the knowledge of love is far more than what you can cognitively comprehend about love. Because love has to be lived to be known. Love has to be formed in us. Growing up into Christian maturity and imitating Jesus in his love is much more about formation than simple information. Melissa shared a poem uh, the other day on her Instagram story that I found very pertinent to my point here. And I don't know who the author is. I could never find it out. But here's what the poet said. She said, how easy to say, I love you. How necessary instead to swallow all that. Let words invade blood, become bones. Let love invade you. That's basically what Paul is saying. It's so easy to say you know about love, about the kind of love with which God has loved us in Jesus, but you have to have that love invade your life and become part of you. How? Well, yes, by the grace of God, of course, but through the practices of love, through listening to and delighting in one another different from you, through sharing hospitality and meals with those that make you uncomfortable and you don't want to invite over, by singing and delighting in music of praise that, to God that is not your heart's language, by being generous with your money and your time, by sharing all things in common in a diverse community. That's how you come to know the love of Christ together. And that is our calling, Grace Mosaic. But Paul's prayer then finally turns and ends with a benediction. Now to him who's able... <laughs> to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want to close with this, that the hope of the church, the hope for our unity and diversity, Grace Mosaic, and our deeper journey into that life is about the power that is at work within us. It's not about how we can track or mix or master all of our diverse parts and produce our own song of love. Pastors and elders and deacons and leaders are not the master producers, though we play our roles. The church is in the eternal and masterful hands of a producer unlike any other. We, he, he, that producer can take all of our out-of-tune, out-of-time, and distorted tracks and somehow mix them just right so that at the right time, the song of the church will hit just right and the platinum single will ring out. The church's hope, the Ephesians' hope, was not in Paul, the man, with his plan and prayer, because Paul was just a minister of the greatest man with the greatest plan and the greatest prayer. The church's hope for unity and diversity is bound up in the body of Christ on the cross. The height, breadth, length, and depth, you know, the ancient commentators, what they saw that as, as an allegory of the two posts of the cross of Jesus that stretch up and down and left and right as far as I can see or mind can know, that it is about the limitless love of Jesus. That is what Jesus has accomplished. But you know what? Jesus also prays for us. He prays for us. And the night that he was betrayed, he prayed this before he served the meal to his followers. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
We are in Jesus together in our diversity and in our unity in the midst of diversity, we display the manifold, multi-everything, multi-colored, multi-timbral, vibrant song of God's redemptive love to our world. That is the hope and glorious gospel this morning. Receive it together. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.